on the run to the winning track. Kyle Lewis near the wall, leaps up, and he makes the catch! Holy smokes, Kyle Lewis! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Matanzerus Podcast, a baseball podcast. I'm Ryan Medeiros, here with Max Tanzer, and tonight we'll be bringing you all of the latest baseball news and trends going on around the game. We'll be talking about the recent GM hirings by the Miami Marlins and the Los Angeles Angels. We'll be talking about all the awards results, including Rookie of the Year, Manager of the Year, Cy Young, and MVP. We'll also be getting into some recent signings and qualifying offers by players across the league. Max, I know we had a lot of stuff going on in awards. We'll start out with the Rookie of the Year. Kyle Lewis of your Mariners took home the award. What were your emotions when that went through? I was very happy. I mean, I thought he was going to get it initially, but to see him get the unanimous vote, I was pretty surprised. Uh, And I'm so happy for Kyle Lewis. Just such a tremendous story coming back from the ACL tear in his rookie pro ball season after he got drafted just about a month or two and then able to battle back, came up in September last year, absolutely bashed. And then after the season got postponed this year due to COVID. He went back home, worked out, and made sure he was in the best shape possible, and he hit the ground running. A tremendous start to the season. First at-bat, homered off Justin Verlander. So quite a performance this season for Kyle Lewis. A tough September, but he was able to hold on and become the first Mariner to win the Rookie of the Year award since Ichiro in 2001. Ichiro turned out to be a Hall of Famer. I hope Kyle Lewis is on somewhat of a similar track. Yeah, no doubt about it. You see his stats this year, the 262 average, 11 home runs, 28 RBIs, and the 801 OPS. He was the key cog in the Mariners lineup on the offensive side of the ball, batting third for most of the year. Um, I know looking into some more of the advanced stats, it really justifies his placement in the awards voting. No doubt. And I want to take a look at those Septembers, too, because Luis Robert, who was one of the other finalists, was neck and neck with Kyle Lewis throughout the first half of the season. And I don't want to take anything away from him. Defensively, he was tremendous and got off to a great start offensively. First, let's look at uh, Luis Robert's stats in September. He went 11 for 81, hit a buck 36, slugged 173. So not the numbers you're looking for right there. Kyle Lewis in September as well in 22 games, 11 for 75. Did have two more home runs, so the slugging percentage was up at 280, but that's not a great stat to look at either way and only hit 147. So both of them really struggled. I think both of them being very young started to get figured out a little bit. And if we had a full 162 game season, I think it would have evened out for both of them a little bit. But Lewis being able to stay consistent for just a little bit longer, I think helped him gain more leverage in this race and keep that batting average above 266 and just hold it above 800, as you mentioned, or hold the OPS above 800, as you mentioned. And he was still good defensively too. So I'm very happy with it. I think he 100% deserved it. And unlike the NL Rookie of the Year race, I thought he was no doubt the front runner in this one. Yeah, you speak on that NL Rookie of the Year race. Devin Williams, a reliever for the Milwaukee Brewers, came out on top. Something a little bit unusual. We don't see a lot of non-closer relief pitchers win this type of award, but Williams was just absolutely dominant this season. He had a 4-1 record out of the pen, a .33 ERA, only one earned run all season on a home run by Colin Moran way back early on in the second outing of the season. 27 innings pitched and 53 strikeouts. He struck out over half the batters he faced with a .63 whip. I mean, just dominant numbers out of the bullpen. I know both of us picked Jake Cronenworth. Would you like to speak a little bit on your decision that led you to pick Cronenworth? 
Well, for starters, I want to say all three of the finalists, Bohm, Cronenworth, and Williams, were all worthy. In fact, coming into it, I said, whoever wins, I'll be happy with. I wasn't upset with Williams winning. However, I did choose Cronenworth 1 because Cronenworth, a position player, plays every day versus Williams through only 27 innings. Now, I will admit 27 innings in a 60-game season should be enough, and the fact that they gave up one run, absolutely tremendous. Don't want to take anything away from that. But for me, the biggest one I looked between was the race between Cronenworth and Bohm. And this one was a race where Cronenworth was leading it for the majority of the season, but then he really cooled down and Bohm just heated up, had one of the best uh, Septembers in Major League Baseball in the National League. And in runners in scoring position, he dominated. Cronenworth was steady for the uh, San Diego Padres throughout the entire season, was a huge guy defensively too, especially when Hosmer went down, played a lot of first base. But the thing that I looked at that was really interesting, Ryan, and I know we discussed this a little bit earlier this week, but I wanted to talk about it more here on the podcast, was Jake Cronenworth's last week of the season. And In a 60-game season, you know, 10, 15 at-bats has such a huge impact, especially on your averages and so forth. And I think coming in, people were looking. Alec Bohm hit as many home runs and drove in just a couple more runs than Jake Cronenworth in less games, and the averages were significantly higher, including the OPS, which was about 50 points higher than Jake Cronenworth's at 881 compared to Cronenworth's 831. But... Cronenworth ended the season with an 0 for 11 stretch. If you were to, if Jace Tingler was to bench Cronenworth for those final few games of the season, he still would have played significantly more games than Bohm, and his OPS actually would have been around in the same neighborhood as Alec Bohm's as well, just showing how much closer their our offensive seasons were. So with that in mind, I put those together, almost considered them tied in a way, and then the fact that Cronenworth is so much more better significantly on defense than Bohm took the cake for me, and that's why I went with him in this one. Yeah, no doubt, and it's worth mentioning that Cronenworth did have the highest war out of the three players who were finalists. It's actually interesting if you factor in, I know the postseason doesn't count in these awards, but Cronenworth played very well in the postseason. He had a 389 average. He did hit a home run, batted in three runs with a 1208 OPS in the postseason, so kudos to him there. I know that didn't factor into the award voting, but it's something worth mentioning. Yeah, something else I wanted to add on, Ryan, too, just to hit the point a little bit more. If you were to add an 0 for 11 skid to the end of Bohm season, his OPS would drop 58 points to 827, which would be about three or four points lower than Cronenworth's 831. So again, 10 at-bats, 15 at-bats, so much of an impact on the season, and that's why it's hard to you know, analyze these players' seasons to compare them when we played so many fewer games than a normal year. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on now to the Manager of the Year awards. We got both of these correct. Kevin Cash of the Tampa Bay Rays and Don Mattingly of the Miami Marlins. Cash obviously dealing with such unusual circumstances, using so many different pitchers, using so many different players, just kind of piecing together the pieces of the puzzle to create a team that ended up making it to the World Series. Max, if you want to delve into this a little bit, what factored into your choice of you know, picking Cash to win this award? No doubt, and I think a lot of people were upset just because of the, obviously the notorious decision to take out Blake Snell. But I, I obviously, well, number one, it's voted on before the postseason. But even if you do include that, I still would have given it to him. And one big thing is small market. He was working with a team that obviously didn't have any superstar players, like a team like the New York Yankees, who was also in the AL East, or you know any or the majority of playoff teams around the American and National League. But then also the fact that you touched on it a little bit, but so many injuries for that team. I think one of the biggest stories 
stories was that the Yankees had so many injuries, and that was one of the reasons why they were struggling towards the end of the season. But the Rays had the same situation, were able to manipulate the bullpen, had so many different guys with saves, and were still able to have the number one seed in the American League. That's a lot right there. A team that doesn't have a superstar bona fide player, their entire starting lineup was being paid less than Jose Altuve for the entire season as a whole, and he was able to lead them to the number one seed. That's incredibly impressive, and there was no doubt in my mind that he should win it. Yeah, interesting that you mentioned the saves piece. I know Kevin Cash, even in the shortened season, used the most different pitchers to get a save in Major League history for a season for a single team. Pretty unbelievable when you consider that. As for Don Mattingly, talk about having to learn a whole new roster. So many different players that Mattingly had to use this season. Obviously, the major COVID outbreak for the Miami Marlins early on in the season. The Marlins having to bring in kind of a slew of different players, you know, free agent signings, trades for players just to get a roster on the field. And Mattingly leads this squad against all the odds to the postseason. I want to get your thoughts a little bit on you know, Mattingly's season on why he, like, even for the voters and for us, was kind of a unanimous choice of sorts for this award. No doubt. And I think the big key, again, has to do with the fact that he lost so many players. Unlike Kevin Cash, where it was majority injuries, the Marlins had a lot of positive COVID-19 tests and some injuries picked up or are in the way as well. And I think he was able to manage around that very well. Obviously, also, the the Marlins had the COVID-19 positive tests early in the year, which postponed a lot of games. I think what 57 games in 55 days or something like that. That was incredible. He was able to keep them going down that stretch with guys that he's not as familiar with subbing in, coming up from the alternate site or waiver claims or so forth, whatever it may be. And then the combination of both a young team that doesn't have a lot of experience and then some veterans who were able to step up as well. And binding those together and being the leader of that team was really, really fun to watch. And for a guy who's had some tough luck in baseball in the past, obviously was one of the few Yankees to never win a World Series, especially left right before they had that big run from 96 to 2001. Uh, able to win a Manager of the Year award and help a Marlins team have the successes did is really awesome to see painted on his baseball resume. Yeah, absolutely. Mattingly was just kind of that steady hand in the clubhouse, I think, which was the perfect fit for a team going through so many unprecedented circumstances. And speaking of a steady hand, let's go over to the American League Cy Young and Shane Bieber, just a guy all season, just so reliable for the Indians. It's unfortunate that it ended up in the postseason. He didn't pitch very well at all. Uh, Led to a loss in game one of the wild card round for the Indians. But that doesn't matter in voting for these awards all season. Bieber was just so solid. 8-1 record, 1-6-3 ERA, 77 in a third innings pitch with 122 strikeouts and a .87 whip. Just mind-boggling numbers and pretty much made him the easiest choice potentially out of all of these. No doubt. And if you look at the baseball reference page, you see a lot of black paint. And what I mean by black paint is you see a lot of bolded statistics, meaning he led the league in all those categories. Wins with 8 ERA with a 1.63 strikeouts. He led Major League Baseball with 122. ERA plus averages 100. He was at 281. That is unbelievable numbers right there. The FIP at 207. Hits per nine, 5.4. Strikeouts per nine, 14.2. That should say it all right there. Uh, I want to give credit to Maeda and Ryu, who were fantastic this season, but nothing even close to the area code that Shane Bieber was in. 
No doubt about that. I, I think it was such an easy award decision. We don't have to spend too much time on it. Going over to the National League, it might have been a little bit of a closer decision just because of how excellent you, Darvish, and Jacob deGrom were. Darvish ended up finishing second, deGrom third, respectively. And uh, the winner, Trevor Bauer, with a 173 ERA, 100 strikeouts and 73 innings pitch in a minuscule .79 whip. He had a 5-4 and four record. Uh, pretty pretty easy choice, I would say. Overall, both of us picked him. Uh, what went into your decision to end up picking him over Darvish? Well, the whip and the ERA were a big key, number one for me. But two, because they were so close, I felt like it was appropriate to look at the significance to their team. And you could argue you Darvish was very significant to his team down the stretch run. But Trevor Bauer... The performances he put down in September, able to pitch on short rest as well, and just the personality and leadership in the clubhouse was something I really considered as well. On top of the fact that he led the National League in ERA and WHIP and was a strikeout machine and was so dumb. And I'm so happy to see him win this award. He's a guy I'm a big fan of. I know a lot of people don't like his antics. I like it a lot. I'm happy to see the Cy Young Award underneath his name as well. Yeah, absolutely. you got to love the passion that Bauer plays the game with. I know, again, like you said, some people aren't a huge fan of it, but I think it does attract a lot of attention to the game, and especially for younger audiences. Outside of how good he was for his team, Bauer, I think, for the entire game of baseball, plays such a role as well. Uh, going on to the American League MVP right now, Jose Abreu. What a great story. This guy comes over from Cuba, just is such a solid player for this White Sox team for so many years. And he really offensively carried the White Sox to the postseason this season. He had a 317 average, 19 home runs, and 60 RBIs. An RBI per game this season. 60 RBIs, 60 games, and a 987 OPS. I think for me, going into this award and factoring in, I chose Abreu. I know you did as well. But for me, it was just the fact that he was such a force on offense this season. He played every game, day in and day out, was just a consistent cog in that White Sox lineup. And you could argue that he was the biggest key in the White Sox making the postseason for the first time in a long time. No doubt, and I know this doesn't play a, a role into the MVP voting, but I was so happy to see him get this recognition on a year where the White Sox went back to the postseason for the first time in what seemed like forever. Ever since I've been watching the game intensely, I haven't seen them in the playoffs until now. So super fun to see, especially since he's been a part of that team for so long. But also the numbers, as you said, dominant. 2.8 baseball reference war. Sabre even had him as the fourth best defensive first baseman this year as well, so you can't put defense against him either. I know sometimes that may play a role into MVP voting. But he was so good. A 411 Woba, 167 WRC plus. Really good numbers. And to me, when I was comparing him to LeMahieu and Ramirez, initially off the bat, I thought Abreu was going to run away. But you could make cases for both of them. I mean, Jose Ramirez, 2.2 baseball reference war, 3.4 fan graphs war, which is quite a big difference. But either way, 58 games for him, 17 homers, 46 RBIs. If you're going to talk about value, Ryan, Jose Ramirez in the middle of a lineup that was notoriously terrible this season for the Cleveland Indians. He played a huge role in getting them into the postseason, so I definitely think that should give him some leverage as well. Uh, 993 OPS, which is right in the same neighborhood as Abreu, actually about five points higher. Uh, 10 stolen bases as well, which I'm sure helped him in the war category, but the defense was not good. He was one of the worst defensive third basemen this year, according to Sabre, so that also put a little bit of a dampen on his case. I'm happy to see Abreu win. And then for LeMahieu, 10 less games. We talked about the significance of that. That weighed down on him for me as well. I went with Abreu. You did too. We got it right. I'm happy he won it. Yeah, absolutely. And not to rip into Jose Ramirez right here because, you know, as you said, 
how Ramirez went was how the Indians' offense went, and unfortunately, that also negatively impacted him in this voting, just because, you know, if you look at the stats here, in August, he had a 700 OPS, which isn't very good, as we know, and in September, he went off, and this is where almost all of his counting stats built up in this season. He had a 1294 OPS, which is just astronomical. He was by far the best player in the American League in September, and that really built up his case to be the American League MVP. But just Abreu's consistency Absolutely. all season, you know, helps his case in being the MVP. And talking about another guy who was so consistent all year, the National League MVP at the same position over there at first base, Freddie Freeman. Just talk about Offensive consistency, just like Abreu, 53 RBIs, was third in all of Major League Baseball, 341 average, 13 home runs, and an 1102 OPS. Freddie Freeman, you got to love this guy, great player in the game, and uh, he wins his first MVP. Yeah, and again, same case with Abreu. Freddie Freeman's been with this ball club, the Atlanta Braves ball club, for such a long time. So cool to see him get this recognition, especially after testing positive for COVID-19 earlier in the season. And this was something he had to deal with a lot, and it wasn't just asymptomatic symptoms. He was actually questioning on whether he could play or not. So the story that he was able to get back on the field and carry arguably one of the best offenses in Major League Baseball season was great to see. And as you mentioned, dominated offensively. Hit 341. The OPS was at 1,102, 456 Woba, and a 187 WRC+. Plus. For bets, you could argue he was a little bit better overall, you know, on defensive side of things, base running too. But Freddie Freeman took away the show offensively. He was dominant. I had to give it to him, and I'm happy he won it. Yeah, absolutely. You're talking about Freeman wondering if he was going to play. Freeman was wondering if he was going to live. I yeah. mean, the fever levels he had, the the level of COVID that he had, which is so devastating for him. It took him a while just to get back to full strength. And I think he's really an example to us all in this ongoing pandemic. I mean, not to get symbolic here, but I know Freeman going through the COVID tough times and coming back to win MVP. I think it's a lesson to us all that we can all overcome this thing in the long run. And he's a great example for all of us. I want to move on here a little bit and talk about the GM hirings. Another amazing story. Kim Ang becomes the first female general manager in Major League Baseball, previously an assistant general manager with the Chicago White Sox, New York Yankees, Los Angeles Dodgers, and also worked in Major League Baseball in the commissioner's office. Just a great story overall, Max. What are your emotions and when you heard that Kim got hired? I woke up just a couple of days ago and I was super surprised and in a good way. I was super happy to see it. I hadn't heard really at all any rumors about this, but seeing the seeing the news made me really happy and this is groundbreaking. I mean, this is well overdue. She's been working in Major League Baseball, whether it be in Major League Baseball's front office or with several teams around the league for over almost two decades now, I believe. She's won three World Series rings. You're not just handed three World Series rings, Ryan. You earn those. And the fact that she's been able to put this career together I think she's going to take this Marlins team and run with it. I credit Derek Jeter and the rest of the Marlins ownership crew, or crew for making this move because I think it's something that some teams may have been holding back on, but the fact that he went there is giving her this opportunity I think will open up so many opportunities for many other qualified female uh, executives in Major League Baseball. So happy, and I hope this is the first of many to come. Yeah, absolutely, and you talk about someone who's an extremely qualified candidate, probably knows more about baseball than, you know, 95% of people working in Major League Baseball, Absolutely. 99%. I mean, ta she's such a qualified candidate, has spent her basically her whole career 
in baseball, in front offices, around man general managers. Obviously, like I said, an assistant general manager for three different teams. She knows the commissioner's office, worked with the commissioner, and uh, just a great hire by the Miami Marlins. Another GM hire was Perry Minazian of the Los Angeles Angels. He previously was the assistant general manager of the Braves. Uh, the Angels kind of were going th through a bunch of different candidates. I know at one point there was 20 different candidates they were considering. I know uh, one of the Mariners front office guys. I know you're a little bit nervous about that, but they ended up they ended up going with uh, Minazian for that front office spot. No, and I think this is a great opportunity for uh, the Los Angeles Angels in this situation just to kind of clear house and not start over because they have their core in Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, and co., but kind of start to build a new direction for this ball club because they've always been on the window of competing, a team that has always been a question mark almost. You know, we've talked about before, they need pitching here, obviously, but I think getting a new leader at the head is almost a fresh, clean slate for them, and I think it was the right move, and obviously... Manassian has been working in an organization where the Atlanta Braves have had a lot of success in the last 10 years, and I think he'll hopefully take that over to the Los Angeles Angels as well. I was a little nervous to see Hollander go to the Angels just because it's a rival team, but at the same time, I was happy for him to get this opportunity, and I'm sure he'll be leaving the Mariners at some point soon to be the GM of another team as well, Is that's just part of the process. But good move for the Angels. Only time will tell if it's a good move or not, but I think it was good to get Epler out of there and start new. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at the two different scenarios, I think if you're Ang going to Miami, you have a lot less pressure on you than Manazian is going into the Angels situation just because the Angels are under such pressure to compete and make the playoffs right now because you have the greatest player in baseball. Not only Mike Trout on your team, but also Anthony Rendon. Now you have Shohei Otani. You have some superstar players in your core to build around. And while that's a good thing, it also puts a lot of pressure on you. Ang's entering, entering a situation where, you know, the Miami Marlins, they made the playoffs this year, but they aren't really expected to compete next year, I wouldn't say, despite them making the playoffs this year. Uh, I think it puts a lot less pressure on her. <clears throat> her job is going to be more about building up the core they have right now to contention, whereas Mazazian is going to be about bringing in pitching, for the most part, to the Angels to put around that core of Bundy, Heaney, and Canning in the rotation. It'll be interesting to see if he goes for a big splash of a guy like Trevor Bauer or kind of builds up the back end of the rotation. But if you're Mazazian, the main thing you're looking for right now is pitching. And speaking about pitching signings, we'll look into some of the free agent signings that have happened over the past few days. Robbie Ray was the main notable one of a free agent guy. He signed a one-year $8 million deal with the Blue Jays. Josh Tomlin recently also signed a deal with the Braves for one year, $1.25 million. Of those two deals, I know they're not major deals, Max, but they could be impactful moves for both of those clubs. No doubt. I like the Robbie Ray move, but obviously he had a really difficult year last year, especially with the Diamondbacks, the 7-8-4 ERA. But when he went over to Toronto, a 4-7-9 in four starts and five outings overall. And again, I think this is a friendly deal on both ends. It's not overly expensive, and he's a guy who has a good track record and has a lot of experience at both pennant chases and postseasons. And I think he could help out this Blue Jays rotation and be a guy who has some experience right with Hinjin Ryu as well, whereas the rest of the starters in that rotation are very young and yet to come up at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And going into the Tomlin move for the Braves, this is a real low-risk move. Tomlin has kind of been just a steady pitcher. 
He eats up some innings. He can be a spot starter. He can close out some blowout games. Again, like I said, just eats up innings, which is a very valuable thing for a competitive club like the Atlanta Braves, who has a lot of young pitching. You know, some of those guys, you want to, you know, put them in situations where they don't have to throw a lot of meaningless innings just because those arms, like I said, are so young and you know we've seen a lot of arm injuries in the game these days Tomlin has been relatively healthy for most of his career and like I said it's just a proven innings eater which is a very valuable thing no doubt and I think this is a hundred percent a depth move obviously they had him last year and that's what the Braves lacked last season whether we talked about it a couple weeks ago COVID opt COVID-19 opt-outs injuries and so forth they had no pitching depth because they had lost almost every single guy they could rely on Tomlin and then at one point was considered to maybe start a postseason game I don't think he did I think he had to come in in relief to eat up some innings like you talked about he'll probably be doing next year but it's a nice guy to have who's been in the league for 11 years now put up a 4.76 ERA and 39 and two-thirds of innings work last year, which doesn't scream dominance off the paper, but it's still pretty solid numbers, and he's been consistent throughout his career, like you said. Again, I don't think this is a major signing, but it's something to keep the Braves or pitching, pitching staff as a whole going and with some depth. Absolutely. Two more notable signings that recently happened were Marcus Stroman for the New York Mets selected his or accepted his qualifying offer and Kevin Gaussman of the San Francisco Giants accepted his qualifying offer. That qualifying offer is worth $18.9 million for a one year and uh, those two guys will be eligible for free agency the next year. This is kind of an interesting thing for both of these guys. Gaussman, who is a relatively unproven pitcher, always been on the cusp of greatness, but has never really broken through. He did break through this season. He was very solid. Uh, many people didn't realize what a year he had just because the Giants weren't super competitive. Marcus Stroman opted out of this season due to COVID concerns, but he's always been super reliable. I know both of these guys should be impact arms for both of their respective rotations going into next season. No doubt. And for both of them, I think it would be silly to not take these offers. $18 million is a ton of money, especially for Gosman. As you said, he's a little bit unproven. And also the market this season. COVID-19 has definitely hurt the economy around the United States and also Major League Baseball. So pitchers and position players as a combination will not be getting paid as much probably as they normally would in a normal offseason. So getting that $18 million locked in is huge. But Gosman, as you said, really good numbers this year. A 3.62 ERA in just about 60 innings. Uh, I think it's a good move for him. The Giants will see, only time will tell. But he's put up some good seasons in the past as well. 18 with the Braves in 10 starts, a 2.87. In 2014 with the Orioles, 3.57 in 20 starts. So he's shown it before. The question is, can he keep it consistent? With Stroman, this is even better because Stroman did not pitch at all last year. So he was definitely not going to get as much as per se if he were to put up a solid season in the COVID year this past season. I think it makes sense. And also, I think the Steve Cohen press conference, which he absolutely hit out of the park, definitely played a role as well. Who doesn't want to play for the New York Mets right now after that? I think Stroman saw that and said, you know what, I'm coming and I'll take that $18 million as well. Good move for him too. Yeah, absolutely. And for a guy like Stroman, you look at his career numbers and 146 games in his career is a 3.76 ERA. So he does have the track record. He's notably a ground ball guy, but this is this is someone who you you would like to see come out next year, pitch pretty well, and then hit free agency as opposed to coming into free agency after a year off. And it's kind of like the Trevor Bauer strategy, how he has talked about just taking the one-year deal, banking on yourself, trusting yourself, having confidence in yourself and your performance and knowing that, you know, if you have a good season, you're going to be able to maximize your value 
heading into free agency after a really dominant season. I know Bauer's case is a little bit different because he's saying he's going to take a one-year deal every year, whereas for Stroman and Gosman, they're just banking on having really good seasons this year as opposed to hitting free agency this winter. Yeah, and I think I apologize to Stroman for making it sound like if I did that he was a bad pitcher. The guy was an all-star and posted a 3-2-2 ERA in 2019, but I definitely do think something to consider for him, especially going into free agency this year, was the fact that he hasn't pitched in a year, and I think that definitely would have hurt him. So the opportunity to continue to prove yourself and show you are a pitcher who could post an ERA within 3-2 and 3-6 and help bolster a staff, I think that's huge for him. And whether or not he stays with the Mets after 2020, this is a really good move for him right now. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to talking about some free agency news and predictions going into our next episode. It should be really fun. There's a lot of top tier guys out there. I not I know it's not so much in the starting pitching side of things, like we said, with Stroman and Gosman accepting the qualifying offers. But in the position player side of things, you know, this could get really interesting with a t- lot of top-tier players. JT Real Muto, George Springer, DJ LeMayhew, Marcelo Zuna. It's going to be really fun. Alrighty, that's going to wrap up the show today. We thank you guys so much for listening. We covered so much today. The awards, the MVPs, Rookie of the Year, Cy Young's, and Manager of the Years, as well as our first batch of off-season moves. We'll keep you guys covered with all of the MLB off-season news, stories, and analysis that you guys need to know. For Ryan Madeiras, I'm Max Tanzer. Thank you so much for tuning in to Matanzerus, and we'll catch you next time. Now, now, now.